You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you recently had a really interesting conversation with Tom Griffiths that you mentioned to me a little bit. I'd love to talk more about that. What did you guys chat about? Well, we chatted about a lot of stuff, but the one I was going to, um, I thought was particularly maybe interesting for Talking Machines was we were at a meeting together and he'd, he'd given a great talk. He's the author of the book Algorithms to Live By, which I have, but I haven't read. He tells me Explore Exploit is in there, so I'm excited about that because that's the main one I live by. But uh, Tom said, uh, well, what do we do about researching in an era of hype? I thought that's just a great question that's probably um, affecting many people on multiple levels. So it's interesting. There's answers for sort of people like Tom and I and people who have been around a while. So I know Tom, I think, from the NIPS program committee when Bernard Shulkoff was program chair. So maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago. And Tom's got a background in cognitive science and was at Berkeley. He's now at Princeton as a professor there, I think, between psychology and computer science. I guess one of the immediate sort of things we were lamenting is that we hadn't seen each other in a bit. And that's a sort of function of the fact that the community is so big, it's difficult to see people who aren't specializing in exactly the same thing that you're doing. So I guess that's one thing. And I guess there's another thing around we were trying to imagine what it's like for younger researchers and what a different landscape it is to that which we experienced. And of course, you know, we were, we were just talking about the old days and how much better they were. You know, I said before, I think I've said before on the program, that these are sort of Alex Ferguson problems, the problems of too much success, but uh, it doesn't stop them being problems. So I think that they're interesting to address. So let me jump in with let me jump in with a question. How how do you feel like the world has changed from when you guys were coming up to the to the focus and sort of global attention that's being placed on this kind of research and how is that changing things for people who are just entering the field? How how do you even function when there's this sort of outside attention? I just had a thought as you were asking that that maybe the easiest way to put it and maybe this is wrong because I only just had this thought. I think the world has changed from a world of problems to a world of solutions. Not that we've solved anything, everything. Not we've, we have solved things. I think that maybe, I think in general fields go through stages, stages where um, they're uh, discovering, well, it comes down to explore or exploit, like this in his book, the, the, field, the stages where you're sort of trying to find new approaches to problems you haven't been able to solve in the past and stages where you've got really good candidate solutions and you're trying to refine them and maybe that's what I mean by a world of problems moving to a world of solutions it's not that you've solved all the problems you were interested in but your solutions once they begin to show some form of success tend to dominate the field and so the research mentality I think changes. And I think that that's probably the underlying cause of a lot of the discussions we see that we've been speaking about on talking machines. And I think that to some extent, you just have to accept it. You can't really fight it, but it doesn't mean that you, I mean, and you shouldn't fight it. It's a sort of, it's a success. I'm sort of curious, like what happened in the area of cybernetics when control theory became dominant and, you know, before too long, cybernetics only meant control. And so if you look at, say, the NIPS community of 97 or even like whatever it was, 2000 and something when Tom and I first met, and then you, you sort of see the problems we're solving today were considered pretty major difficult problems at the time. 
and then the community can necessarily become necessarily is the wrong word but um naturally dominated by those uh, solutions which is great because actually that's what you want that's a success but if if you're sort of happy about that and you think that's great and you also think yeah and there's a load of ongoing issues that's i think where tom and i on it which still need attention it's sort of like well of course you can carry on working them as before and but i guess there's a feeling which i see reflected a lot that it's hard that your community has changed from explore into more exploit or from problems to solutions and that nature of that change means that you don't have the the sort of quality and variety of conversations that you were having which really brought the ideas that these important solutions are based on i part of my thought was i think that this is just the natural rhythms and there's there's not too much you can do about it uh, other than celebrate the excitement of the fact that we're um i mean this is one answer i mean i'll give other answers we're living in that era and we were lucky enough to be there at the beginning but probably for most listeners there's a sort of more a different thing which is well i'm interested in this stuff and i want to be involved and how do i find it in when you know i was speaking to one of my um old phd students carl henrik Eck, who teaches in bristol and he teaches the machine learning course there he said he's having to teach it in a large tent because of the size of the course so it's like you know to me it's like they're teaching machine learning in tents. You know, it's become like a festival crowd. I was going up to do the Gaussian Process Summer School in Sheffield, just my plug there for an event that happened last week, so you can't attend unless you've discovered time travel. I was stuck on the platform in Leicester Station changing because there were horses on, on the train line, which is obviously not real horses pulling trains. We're not that quaint in Britain. I was stuck there and there was, there was a group of mathematicians heading for a conference somewhere. They were all in dynamics and they were, I think from Switzerland, I was, you know, not that I was listening to their conversation at all. And they were talking about how they're struggling versus the machine learning courses in their departments to get students. They said, oh, well, maybe we should invent a course called the dynamics of machine learning and we'll get students because our machine learning course had 200 and something students. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's what's going on. So when you hear that, so I'm not experiencing that, but you hear that right at the moment, but you, you hear that in terms of what the universities are going through and, and what students are obviously trying to do to sort of get their names known. So the opportunities are greater because there's many more jobs, but the challenges, it's a very different environment. And I mean, I have written about this in the past part of what I said then which was just a given advice given to a, a PhD student from Alto I happened to meet over breakfast after ICML in Lille was sort of this analogy of proto soccer or football as we'd call it which um did used to involve this sort of chasing around after the ball all the time in a large scrum or scrimmage as it were and then people over time evolved to change the game so that you move to where you think the ball's going to be and I think if you play ultimate which is this game with the frisbee but apparently i learned it's not called ultimate frisbee because frisbee is a trademark do we have to pay them if we've said that ultimate uh then this is the same thing you move to where you want the disc to go did i say that right is disc the right term i don't play but you know um yeah you know and and i think that that, that part of the answer is that that actually you can try and get involved in a scrimmage around where the ball is but that, that actually that 
that's not typically very productive unless you're really good at kicking the ball and potentially other people because you know and and you've got shins that can take an enormous amount of punishment because there's no sort of shin guards because other people will be kicking at that ball as well <laughs> but if you if you, i think you want to sort of judge where things are moving to which is hard to do earlier on in your career i think that all of us later on develop a sense of the area we're interested in that thing we think things should move to or might move to over time but earlier on in your career you might know that less so then i think it becomes about making sure that the thing you're doing is something you're passionate about like you have a reason why you think machine learning is important and you want to deploy it in that domain even that then seems to be hard. So like you can see there's now a lot of, which is exciting, a lot of passion around fairness and transparency and machine learning. It's, it's a very, it's become now a fashionable topic. It was a sort of topic that, you know, was, was being researched, but, it, but you get this sense now that people are really interested in because they think they realize it's important. So if you were passionate about that, you're now kicking <laughs> you know, the ball around in that subfield. So I think that's difficult. Yeah. So part of my answer is I, I don't know. But but maybe it also so so be, making sure that you're you're passionate about the things that the field is excited about currently, but then also like making sure that you're consuming lots of different modes of thought so that you can have a good understanding of where the the disc might go, like where it might end up, because it's never going to stay in the place where it is now. Yeah, I think that's it, and then you end up chasing the disc or the ball, and you know that takes a lot of energy. It could be quite frustrating. You know, my whole um, PhD thesis is mainly about problems in neural networks that I saw as problems before I entered the field and set out to solve. And by the time I was solving them, no one was interested in them anymore. <laughs> so that's a sort of sense of, you know, and I'm not saying that they're particularly, I mean, they were, I, they felt interesting to me and they drove me certainly. And actually it's a great exercise in learning techniques for doing stuff. So it's fine. But no one was really interested in what I was doing, either from a journal perspective by that time. I could sort of been inspired by that to enter the field. But by the time I was working on it, which was sort of variational methods in neural networks. So it is very hot now. You know, funnily enough, I've moved on. I, I, I still follow a little bit what they do, but I'm doing something else. And at the time, and the field was had moved on at that time because it's sort of come back a bit to a lot to look at that. now. So you can see how you can be totally out of sync there's nothing really wrong with that if it's something that's driving your interest would be part of my answer you don't have to if it gets you out of bed in the morning then i think that that's better than feeling you're chasing chasing things all the time and that someone else has scooped you i mean because there's like there's only you know i keep saying there's only so many ideas that work and if there's a lot of you looking at the same thing chances are several will you have of you will have the same idea and so it's unsurprising when the idea you had someone else publishes just before you, that happens quite a lot, right? And you should just pat yourself on the back and say, that was a great idea I had, look. <laughs> I didn't even have to do any work. <laughs> right, right. You'd just be like, I, I'm so glad that somebody solved this part of the, the question that I'm interested in. You should go up and say, thank you for resolving that. I thought of the same thing. People love that if you tell them you also thought of that. And uh, it's great that they worked it out for you. Would you would you mind just citing me about it? I know I didn't tell anyone I had the same idea, but I did. <laughs> awesome. Okay. What's Tom's book again? Algorithms to Live By? Algorithms to Live By. And and I guess the other thing that, that you see that's emerging, so both Tom and I talked about, is that 
while we're still at big conferences like NIPS, we tend to get more, I suppose, academic fodder in terms of thought fodder from smaller meetings that may be a little bit peripheral to the field because there tends to be diversity of thought there so that that's kind of the answer from the that's the answer but then we were lamenting the fact that the the meetings we choose to go to we don't tend to see each other at and you know i i think he's a very inspiring individual and i would like to hear him talk more so that's the sad thing so algorithms to live by it's by tom griffiths and brian christian awesome so anticipating where things are going to go, maybe going to gatherings that are not the big ones to scout interesting questions and problems to see where things are headed, and generally being dedicated to your to your question that's going to get you out of the bed in the morning because there's only so many questions to ask is the, is the way to sort of feel out the field when there's a lot of people doing work in it. And if you're passionate, you'll go further. You'll be able to run longer. Although now I realize maybe it was a test. Maybe he was testing if I'd read his book and chapter three is, here's an algorithm for researching in an era of hype. And I was just supposed to be reciting it. Maybe I should have said, isn't this in your book? <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't read the book. Man, if he's asking me for advice when he's described these algorithms to live by, that's disturbing. No, it's not at all. You should read the book. I think a lot of it is probably found, a lot of the answers are found to, in the Explore Exploit chapter, I'm guessing, because I'm always living by Explore Exploit. So a lot of my answers are based on that. Well, we'll have a link to Algorithms to Live By on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines, clearly Neil is someone who follows you on Twitter. Neil. Recently on your Twitter feed, you were talking about your love of variational methods. Can you please tell me more about that? Why do you love them and what do you use them for? Yeah, that's um, so actually uh, me saying that was triggered, I think, from a tweet by Mike Osborne that was along the lines of if we could do automatic integration like we can do automatic differentiation, then AI would be close to solve, which I kind of don't really fully agree with, but I know where Mike's coming from. And, I, and, you know, in a tweet, he probably couldn't make the entire subtlety of his thought process, you know, that which is why arguments on Twitter work so well. Yeah, and, um, well, my answer was, which this is one reason I love variational methods, because they um, effectively, indirectly turn integration into differentiation. So let's dissect the two statements. The first, which I broadly agree with, is that if we could do automatic integration, that would be a really big boon on solving problems in intelligence. And why is that? Well, loosely speaking, I mean, and this comes up a lot in probability, but uh, I think it comes up everywhere. I mean, integration is a global method. It considers all values of the function. And if, if the values of that function are sort of quality, they're representing some quality of some different states of a situation. So it's generally a value function or probability of ending up in a different state. Then understanding all possible values that function can take is a sort of important part of exploring the space. If, you know, Integration is very tightly, closely connected to exploration of what you think your current state is going. In probability, 
that comes up with the normalization condition. So you're looking at probability distributions. Um, you have a complex distribution over states you think exist, some of which you can't observe. And so you say, well, let me consider for the ones that I can't observe, let me consider them all weighted by their probability of happening. And that, that's a big high dimensional integration. And that's what Mike's driving at, I believe, without having had a detailed conversation with him and just reading his tweet. Um, it's certainly the, the thought that comes into my head. And I think Mike and I think fairly similarly about these things. So um, why does that lead me to think of variational methods? Well, that we use variational methods in machine learning in particular ways in something called variational inference. So its term has evolved from where it was in physics. So it, in physics, I think it comes from the calculus of variations or something. And then variational methods, uh, my rough understanding of how mathematical physicists would understand them is they allow you to convert integrations into optimizations. So since optimizations are often gradient-based, that gives the connection with differentiation. So how do they do that? Well, variational inference itself uses, this is a classical one, uses a lower bound on the term of interest, which is often a marginal likelihood, as I described. And the bound is known to be exact under certain conditions, but those conditions recreating them exactly is normally intractable. So the calculus of the variational methods, what we do is we try and tighten the bound as much as possible. So we can't recover that we can recover, we can lower bound the integral. We have some parameters associated with our bound that can change the tightness of that bound. Often, we can say that there is a setting of these parameters which would make that bound exact and recover the exact integral. But often still, those parameters are not tractable to find, like either the compute taken is too much or it's not mathematically analytical. So instead, we maximize the bound with respect to some constrained version of those parameters. So instead of allowing those parameters to be totally free in form, we describe um, some constraint on those parameters and we maximize, I guess, I don't know if relaxed is the right term that's used in optimization sometimes, but we, we optimize a different problem with respect to these variational parameters, allowing us to um, get tight to the integral. And often we're using gradient best methods to do that. So if you look at things like stochastic variational inference, that's a really interesting area. Tools like Edward, we also... Um, work on tools like this. We've got an early release of a tool like this from my team, which we're not sort of promoting yet, but we will do when we get there because I think it's a very interesting area. Tools that allow you to do automatic gradient, automatic differentiation methods to optimize a variational bound are effectively turning automatic integration into an automatic differentiation problem through the use of variational methods. Now, the approximations they use um, mean that you're not doing the integral exactly. And people who look at Monte Carlo and stuff like that say, well, we can get we can get closer to the truth. So somehow there's always a limitation because you've had to make these assumptions about um, how the parameters are somehow constrained. You're not doing full freeform optimization of your distributions. But I, I've always found that, I mean, I worked on them in my thesis. It was variational methods for probabilistic models, mostly neural networks, and uh, I still work on them today. So I'm obviously somehow drawn to that aesthetic. 
Well, yeah, totally, totally biased. I mean, there's, I can give you many situations where you, you perhaps shouldn't be using variational methods, but um, I just think, I find that framework so elegant that I'm sort of drawn to it. So, you know, I, I can give you plenty of reasons why I think the variational method, you should use variational methods, but I also know that I'm, I'm subjective about it. I find the, the framework extremely elegant. And it was one of the first complex bit of maths that I understood. And, you know, so it's like love at first sight. You never forget the first bit of complex maths you understood. I was reading papers by Tommy Yarkola on mixtures of variational things and, and Lawrence Saul. You were right at the forefront of this movement coming out of statistical physics and um, and re-implementing them. And I guess probably that was on sort of variational mixture distributions for so-called sigmoid belief networks. Um, so another type of neural network. And, you know, the, the, I had so much respect for these guys who were so technical and being able to understand, just understand what they were saying and implement it and see that it was working. I mean, it didn't save the world, but it, but it worked. Was, so that, that's probably an explanation also for my bias. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines about something that you feel like Neil loves on the internet and want to know why, you can tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Alyssa Strom. She's executive director of the Pan-Canadian AI strategy at CIFAR. And when we got a chance to chat with her at the Deep Learning Summer School, I asked her the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So it's it's been a long and interesting road. And I would say 10 years ago, when I started career path in research administration, I never imagined that I would be working in the field of computer science. It's not my area of background at all, but uh, it's been an interesting journey for sure. So I did a PhD in neuroscience at the University of British Columbia. And uh, after my PhD, I actually went to Sweden and I did a postdoc in Sweden for a year. So I grew up in Toronto, but I'd lived in Toronto and in Ontario all my life. And so I wanted to go to Vancouver to see another part of Canada. And when I was done with Vancouver, I wanted to see Europe. And so the postdoc in Europe was my my entree there. But it was really during my postdoc when I realized that I'm interested and passionate about science and technology and engineering and medicine really broadly. And I wanted to find a career path that would allow me to dabble in science communication and policy and really enabling research across many fields. And I knew I couldn't do that as a professor at a university. And I thought, you know, this is the time. This is the time for me to take a leap and try to find a career path that will allow me to do all those things. And as I looked at jobs in government and in industry and in publishing, I thought, like, where can I find a role that really fits what I love to do? And where can I find a place that I really want to be? And university research administration really came up as the key for what I was looking for. And so uh, I started uh, in an entry-level position as a, a grants officer at York University here in Toronto. It was my first job out of my postdoc. I did that for a year and a half. And really interestingly, actually, the dean of the Faculty of Science and Engineering at the time was one of the foremost computer science researchers in Canada, Nick Sircone. And he was really a great inspiration and a mentor to me and really supported the advancement of my career and was really, really just a tremendous help. And so the, the next 
next move that I made was to come down to the University of Toronto. In 2008, I moved down to the U of T and I took up a role in the VP research office. And I was basically uh, then spent the next nine years actually working directly for the VP research of U of T on all kinds of institution-wide strategic research initiatives. And that was the dream job that I imagined when I was a postdoc thinking about what I wanted to do with my career. So I did research strategy at the university, research policy, communications, international partnerships, industry partnerships, all sort of high level. My very last role at U of T before I moved to CIFAR, actually the last two and a half years, I ran an industry academic research consortium that was led by U of T. It's SOSIP, exactly. And so it was a collaboration between 15 universities in Ontario and IBM as the lead industry partner. And our model was to basically bring academic researchers, professors and their students together with companies to do advanced research projects using high performance computing primarily, but also AI. And so I learned so much through that experience about advanced computing, about data science, about AI. I worked with lots of startups who are trying to build new AI-based technologies, products, and services. And I just thought, like, this is the future. Like, the the future is now. This is where we are going. And it was such an exciting field to be in. And so last fall, when the opportunity came up for me to join CIFAR and lead the implementation of our national AI research strategy, I just had to jump at it. Like, there was no way that I could say no to that opportunity. And so it's been, like, a really, really exciting six months, first six months on the job. I'm really enjoying meeting researchers across the country who are advancing this field, working with our three national AI institutes, our, our three centers of excellence, and really trying to bring the community together to create something that's really bigger than the sum of its parts. So yeah. it's been a blast. Yeah, and, and like I, from the from the, uh, a, an observational vantage point outside of it, what a six months it's been. Like, it oh my gosh. It's been absolutely a roller coaster, whirlwind, really, really exciting time to yeah. be in this field for sure. Yeah. And I think the community, I mean, um, CIFAR, legendary, goes back, I mean, Jeff Hinton, right? You just say all the, the words in the right order and it sort of like explains yeah. Canada is like forefront in this industry. And then also AICML, which had the name change recently to Amy, you know, Mila and the Bengios goes goes way, way back and and Vector sort of being a new addition to all of this. Tell me a little bit more about the the strategy as a whole and sort of where CIFAR fits in. I think it it seems like a very rapid change to be making. Absolutely. And it's it's a great story. I love telling this story. So um, in March of 2017, our federal government decided that Canada needed to make a really significant investment in this space in order to maintain our leadership advantage and our position in sort of being real international leaders in AI research and innovation. Very quickly, they they brought together the stakeholders and put together a $125 million investment over five years directly into basically academic research in AI in Canada. It's huge. It's the probably the biggest single investment our federal government has ever made in one field of research. So it's 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 amazing, and it was a really important thing to do at that point in time, for sure. But they asked CIFAR to lead the implementation of that strategy, and that really is based on our history as an organization that's been around for 35 years, mm-hmm. really uh, with a long history of bringing together leading researchers in the field from around the world in all of the research areas that we focus on, but particularly in AI. So we have great partnerships, relationships, deep expertise uh, and experience in working in AI. And the reason for that is when CIFAR was formed in 1982, 
the very first research program that they launched was called Artificial Intelligence Robotics in Society. So, you know, for 35 years, we have been an organization that has really seen the value of this opportunity around science and technology, the opportunity that it brings for science and society, but also the issues that we need to be aware of and the uh, understanding the societal implications and seeing that as an important part of advancing the technology. In 2004, we launched a brand new research program. At the time, it was called Neural Computation and Adaptive Perception, which is a mouthful. NCAP, they abbreviated it to. But that was the program that Jeff Hinton launched. So what Jeff did was he really wanted to bring together researchers from the neurosciences along with computer science researchers so that we could take what we know about, at at that time, what we knew about how the brain learns and understands and perceives the world around us and start to apply it to machines and start to apply it to AI. So it was really a really forward-thinking way of thinking about artificial intelligence. It was a new way of thinking about artificial intelligence. And Jeff really became the catalyst to bring together great researchers across Canada, Mm -hmm. but also around the world into this program. And the program still exists today. It's called Learning in Machines and Brains. It's been around now for 14 years. Today, it is co-directed by Yashua Bengio and Jan LeCun from Facebook and NYU. And it's in the 14 years that that program has been around, it's really been responsible for developing some of the foundational algorithms, technologies, approaches of machine learning and particularly deep learning approaches to AI that are now really the basis for all of the technologies that we know and love that are AI-based technologies. And so CIFAR funded that program and funded that area of research at a time when other funding agencies were not interested in uh, this really sort of experimental and out there area of research. And we built great connections with these researchers. We supported their, their research. We helped them to advance the field. And so it's this strong history and strong relationships that we have that led the federal government of Canada to come to us last year and say, will you lead our national AI strategy? And tell me a little bit more about the strategy itself. Yes, we absolutely. have these these three sort of centers that sort of like cross the country. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a really, really exciting time for AI research in Canada. There are essentially four pillars to the strategy. First and foremost, what we wanted to do was establish the research clusters in Toronto, Montreal, and Edmonton as real centers of excellence for AI research in Canada. And so we created brand new independent not-for-profit research institutes. So in Toronto, it's the Vector Institute. In Montreal, it's Mila. And in Edmonton, it's Amy, which formerly was the Alberta Institute for CML. And so we knew that we had great research leaders in those three centers. We had Joshua in Montreal. We had Jeff Hinton here in Toronto and Rich Sutton in Edmonton. And over the years, those three great leaders, you know, had drawn fantastic students, other colleagues. They'd really built up these these clusters and hubs of activities. And and so we knew that uh, investing and growing in those three centers was a really strategic way to advance our position. And so the establishment of the institutes was first and foremost as part of the strategy. The second pillar of the strategy is really around talent and making sure that we have the resources to keep the great minds in Canada here, whether we're talking about faculty or graduate students or postdocs, uh, but also to draw world-class talent from around the world to come to Canada. And so the sort of hallmark program around talent for us is called the Canada CIFAR Chairs in AI Program. 
And this is what's really exciting right now, and it's really starting to take off. The CCAI Chairs Program, the goal is to name 50, 50 research chairs in AI wow. across the country. So they will be based at one of the three AI institutes. They will be world-leading researchers in AI, and the program gives them funding for their salaries, but also to support their graduate students and advance their research programs. The goal of the program is that at least half of those people, so at least 25 of those people, will be recruited from overseas to come to Canada. Wow. So it's really meant to be a brain gain tool, and uh, the program is really just getting off the ground right now. We have received the very first nominations to that program last week. I've been working very closely with the three AI institutes now over the last several months as we strategically think about how we can use that funding uh, and bring great people to Canada or keep them in Canada. And this fall, we'll be announcing the first cohort of CCAI chairs. We're hoping to do it at NIPS in oh, December wow. in Montreal. I can tell you right now that it's going to be a really exciting crop of young investigators who are really at the forefront of this field, both Canadians and people who are coming from overseas. So that is a big part of our strategy is, is people. Third part of the strategy is really a national program of activities. So at CIFAR, we are hosting and partnering with organizations across the country to organize conferences, events, workshops, summer schools, provide catalyst funding to support collaborations between researchers that are across the country and really trying to tie and coordinate collaboration and research across the three AI institutes, but also with researchers at universities across the country. So I'm working with researchers in Vancouver. We work with the AI Institute in Waterloo. We're interested in working with researchers at all of the universities in Canada. It's been an exciting summer on that front. So uh, the national program really, really uh, kicked it off this summer with a bunch of high-impact summer schools and summer labs. It's a really key aspect of our training program and helping young people to really develop the skills and expertise they need to get great jobs in this field. And so we've had a series of summer schools across the country in Montreal. Doina Precup uh, ran her AI for Social Good Summer Lab, which was a huge success, and it's many years now into its programming. We'll be expanding that program across the country, or at least in new locations next year. We're excited about that. We supported a summer camp for girls at Simon Fraser University this summer. So it's uh, an expansion of the AI for All program that Fifi Lee uh, from Google and Stanford runs in the U.S. At Simon Fraser University in Vancouver this year, they ran the first program that was outside of the U.S. It's intended to give grade 11 girls from sort of all walks of life a chance to come and get two weeks of hands-on sort of AI boot camp, great technology expertise and experience. And I had the privilege of going out and seeing those girls last week and just such an exciting group of young minds and so passionate and so inspirational. So that's been a great element of our summer program. And then right now here in Toronto, we have CIFAR Deep Learning Summer School. And this year has been the best summer school to date. Absolutely. It is uh, got the most amazing speakers from around the world and across Canada coming to share their knowledge about the latest advances in uh, deep learning and reinforcement learning to the world's smartest young uh, PhD masters and postdocs from around the world. So I don't know if you have heard any of the demographics about this year's summer school, but it's a really exciting, yeah. exciting group of people. So we had about 1,200 applications mm -hmm. this year from around the world. 
And it's an excellence-based procedure. So we actually send their applications out to peer review. And we only had the capacity of the lecture hall just across uh, the way from us right now. Exactly. is only 270. And this is one of the bigger lecture halls at the University of Toronto. Uh, and so that was, our, that was our cap. That was our limit. We had to find the 270 best best people in the world to include in our summer school and and we did that and it's a really really exciting group of students and so they are mostly masters and phd students and some postdocs there are some professors who are here professors from other disciplines for instance who have come to learn the essentials of deep learning uh, there's a few people from industry and there are two undergraduate students who made the cut as well too so we're really really excited about that they're now about four or five days into their program of a 10-day program they've lost that glassy look in their eye they're really continuing to be sort of stimulated excited and engaged uh, by the professors who are coming in from uh, across the country around the world from industry as well as academia they represent 20 different countries the majority are from Canada about 160 are from Canada and the rest are from around the world and so this is really the first year that we've expanded that summer school to be part of the uh, pan-canadian AI strategy and it really is part of our tactic I would say to recruit great young talent to come to Canada and so they're having a fabulous, fabulous time. The fourth part of our strategy, the fourth pillar of our strategy is our AI and society program. And this was a really essential part of Canada's national AI strategy. It was really important uh, to the government and of course to us at CIFAR that we make sure that we are focusing and investing time and effort and energy on understanding the societal implications of AI, not just the technology, but really understanding what it means, what are the economic policy, social, legal, ethical impacts of AI. And so we're actually running that program almost as a CIFAR program in and of itself. So it's an international research program that CIFAR is running in very close collaboration, of course, with our AI institutes. But the goal is to really work with thought leaders around the world to start to understand what are, you know, what are some of the um, best practices, what are some of the guidelines that we should thinking about when we think about the societal implications of AI. Uh, we're working very close with government on this one, both provincial governments and our federal government. 